Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today, we are going to talk about a famous, the most famous social science experiment you may never have heard of. Uh, and if you've never heard of a social science experiment, I'm guessing that you have, because in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, this was the golden age of social science, where basically, you know, at the time it was typically college kids uh, would, would be involved in these experiments that would kind of teach a little bit about human nature. The most famous is the Stanford Prison Experiment, kids broken up into two groups, you got guards and prisoners, and by the end, it was chaos. Uh, but you learned a little something about how humans interact in groups, and this was a big focus at that time. So today, we're going to talk about the Robber's Cave Experiment, and this was one that was done with children in a summer camp, and the results are are just, uh, in some ways, staggering, uh, and I don't know what's more staggering, the results or the approach to the, to the experiment. Uh, nonetheless, it is one heck of a story that Gina Perry outlines in her book, The Lost Boys, and I, I think th this was just one of those, uh, it's an experiment I'd never heard of. I, I love this stuff. I'm really interested in... Uh, in, in social experiment psychology, I, I, it's just, uh, you know, uh, mind-blowing, really. So we're going to get into that. Let's just, I just want to jump right in because we, we got to get to the nitty-gritty here. Um, we got to jump right in. So first of all, Gina, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is, you know, uh, this is just an incredible experiment that you uh, that you took a look at. This um, Muzaver Sharif is an incredible figure, and the stuff that you came up with you had so much access to information that was just not available for so long on a topic that I, I don't know if it really changed the course of history, but I think he got at some truths, but did it in a very strange way. Uh, but this book kind of looks at all of that. You know, how did you happen to luck into a trunk full of golden goodies like this that helped you put together this this book? Yeah, well. I, I agree with you. I did have fantastic access to material um, and I did also had to do an awful lot of my own kind of tracking down. But yeah. um, I was very fortunate because I had already um, written a book about Stanley Milgram's obedience experiments. And I don't know if you know Milgram's experiment, but he's famous for having a shock machine. Yep. And I went to the Centre for the History of Psychology at the University of Akron to see the shock machine. Oh, wow. You actually saw, wait, you saw the machine itself? Like you actually, yeah. oh, wow, that's uh, cool. I to see the machine in order <laughs> yeah. to, to write about it and, and actually see what it looked like. Wow. And while I was there, I was lucky enough um, that the director told me about this, uh, he called it the gem of their collection, and that was all the material related to this experiment called the Robber's Cave Experiment. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, it rang a bell with me, but I didn't know a lot about it. So I kind of nodded at him and said, how wonderful. And then, of course, I raced away and 
Google very quickly to find <laughs> right. out what about. Yeah. But of course, the material that that a uh, uh, researcher sends to an archive for storage, uh, you, you, what you find is that you've got the official version of events in terms of what they published about an experiment, but then there was this trunk full of basically the behind-the-scenes, background notes, all the preparations that went into this experiment. <laughs> right. So yep. it was a fantastic gift, actually. I'm very grateful to the um, coming Centre for the History of Psychology. Well, it's a great, I mean, that's such a, a brilliant description because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to preempt too much of the, the fun surprises that are in this book, but it is, it is like you found the behind the scenes, you found the making of the robbers experiment, because as you describe it, you know, Sharif was kind of, he had his ideas in place and he created an experiment that was just designed to prove his theory. And I think you, I've got the, I'm going to mention the quote. I can't, I don't have access to it right now. It's in my notes, but it was basically that they were, choreographed in this they were the, the the children at the camp were the choreographed actors in the play that Sharif was putting on so it's just a brilliant analogy that all the stuff you found was in fact the behind the scenes I mean I think one of the pieces you found was a uh, uh, the, the pants someone had stolen someone's pants and had written their name on it as like a trophy that they're using as a flag and you you kind of unfurled those pants <laughs> in the trunk uh, it was it, it's just it's just crazy to think about all this stuff because you know this is, you know, uh, well, well, I want to talk about a couple things about Musfar Sharif, who was the experimenter, before we jump into the cave experiments, because I, I have to tell you, I learned a couple of things. The, the third section of your book is kind of about Sharif himself, and I, I don't know how much time we're going to have to get into it, but at any point you feel like something from his past is important to bring up, please do. But a couple of the things, you know, you went to his hometown, you, you know, you went to Turkey, uh, where, where he was from. Uh, you, know, you mentioned he was kicked in the head as a camel as a boy, which comes up later on is for having some of his, you know, some of his uh, mental struggles. But also two things. Number one, in 1913, he was present for the expulsions of the Armenians from Turkey. And this was really incredible because here in Los Angeles, there's a, a big Armenian population very close. And every year there's a march on the Turkish embassy. And it's a really big deal. And, you know, as someone who didn't grow up in Los Angeles and didn't grow up Armenian or Turkish, uh, it didn't mean anything. But I learned so much from your book about those horrific events, which is was really impressive. And also, uh, you know, the the one thing that I loved is that this was really a part of the golden age of scientific experiments. And, you know, this, a lot of this research came out of the studying of the Nazis after World War II. Um, but, you know, including the milligrams experiment that you talked about in the Stanford prison experiment. But that that Sharif took money from the, the CIA for the mind control experiments. And I did a whole episode on MK Ultra and what that went into. What, I want to talk about that really quickly because that is such a fascinating, it's a fascinating point in U.S. history. But it, 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 the fact that it was tied to these campers and what they went through, or, or at least the experiments that he took part of, that was fascinating to me. So tell me a little bit more about that, please. Well, um, the the MK Ultra funding came for uh, was given to Sharif for research that he did after the robbers' cave. Okay, and he was looking at um, observational studies of adolescent boys. But basically, um, at that point, as you know, uh, the whole MK Ultra um, emphasis was on how you can persuade and 
change people's minds. And Mm -hmm. Sharif's particular interest was in how our peers can do that, the groups that we belong to and who we identify with and how that can shape how we behave, how we think and what values we hold dear. So that was kind of a constant theme. And honestly, it's not surprising that to me, uh, I was surprised, but when I then looked at the broader history of MKUltra, that kind of research fitted in quite well with the kinds of things that they were interested in. The irony, of course, is that um, Sharif was not aware because MKUltra used a front organisation to and, fund a lot and of several. psychological research. <laughs> yeah. Several, yeah, they were yeah. very yeah. elusive, yeah. So um, I certainly know that Carolyn Wood Sharif, his wife, when she was confronted by the fact that this had happened, was horrified because... Politically, they were not people who would have supported that kind of manipulative uh, research that could be used for nefarious political ends. So it was it was ironic, but it was also sad because I would say that Sharif and his partner, Carolyn Wood Sharif, were idealistic uh, researchers and... Um, to, to discover that their research funding had come from that source was I felt was um, was sad, but they certainly weren't the only ones, as you know. Right. Mm. Well, it's it's interesting because you mentioned how difficult you know how they didn't even know they were being funded by the CIA because I feel like a lot of the present day cor- corrupt corporate practices learned a lot from the the MK Ultra experiments is the way they have these shell organizations and these front um, you know front people and and uh, it's just it goes you know goes everything goes back to the Cayman Islands I think but it was it's amazing what they did there but the irony you mentioned irony. The irony is that Sharif was also investigated by Joe McCarthy uh, during the Red Scare, which is interesting because, you know, they were being he's being funded secretly, but then also, you know, being looked at uh, a lot of foreigners were. But for being a communist, that was kind of an interesting tie. I think that was an interesting little nugget you dug up. It would have been a terrifying time, I imagine, for him and his family because his status in America uh, at that time in terms of his relationship to Turkey and his relationship to America, uh, it was very tenuous. I mean, uh, in Turkey, it was very difficult for him to return to Turkey. Um, He'd had a a wonderful career there. He'd started off being um, celebrated and, you know, uh, promoted in the university system. Mm -hmm. And um, really, he was stranded in America around that time of the McCarthy era and was under investigation. And like a lot of people at that time, uh, particularly in academia, uh, they'd been radicalised by the depression. They'd seen the effects of poverty. Mm -hmm. They'd seen the way people could be divided and how racism could flourish. And and, um, they were really interested and and devoted their time to studying ways of breaking that down. And yet at the same time, he was being subject to the same kind of political uh, scrutiny and intimidation as a lot of other academics. So it was a difficult situation. And the other thing is, I guess, is that um, when you look at his experiments, Uh, On one hand, they are about social influence, how the membership of the groups that we're part of affects how we behave. But his his overall 
conclusion at the end of the robber's cave study and the ending that, as you mentioned, he engineered was that you can engineer groups who are warring and fractious to come together for the greater good and Mm -hmm. create a harmonious society. So he was idealistic and his research was really about finding that uh, that harmony and that um, peace really between warring groups. And that was really the story of his life. As you say, he, he grew up in Turkey in a time of incredible conflict um, and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. So um, and witnessing events in his childhood that we would describe today as incredibly traumatic. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, and it, it kind of, yeah, it, it really formed a lot of his ideas and his theories. But, you know, you mentioned uh, the thing that I think really hit me right off the bat when I was looking at this, when I was reading at it, is this, you know, I know you're in Australia. Uh, you know, we live in a very strange time in the world. This is not a political show by any stretch of the imagination. But I could not help but draw the parallels between American politics, the extreme tribalist nature of American politics, and I feel like how we've been engineered uh, to pick a side, right? You're the rattlers or the eagles. You know what I mean? Like you're, pick the, you're picking a side, and people are manipulating the events around, just like in this experiment, except, you know, now we have this global pandemic, which you would would think, according to uh, according to Sharif's theory, that that was that's the forest fire we're going to talk about. That's designed to bring these boys together. This COVID, how is it not a fire? You know, it, it's a fire in the sense that human beings are the trees, right? And it didn't work at all. As a matter of fact, that drove, at least in America, and I'm only speaking from an American perspective, it seems to have driven a wedge further, and these groups have become more separated, more diverse. And I find that, I just found that to be such an amazing parallel after reading your book. I could not help but scribble in my notes that I had to mention this at least, because as idealistic as Sharif was, and, and a lot of the stuff I do believe in, because he really, I think, uncovered a lot of fundamental truths, or at least you did in your explanation of what really happened that I think we did not capitalize on and that was not really looked at when he finished his final masterpiece and dissertation on this and released it. I, I know, what, what do you think about that? I think, I think, um, I think you're right in the sense that it, it's, we can see the parallels seem startling and you talk about the pandemic, but I think, I think what Sharif's experiment teaches us is to look at who is profiting from this division Right, and that is the way that uh, in the the book I write about an earlier experiment that failed because the two groups of boys turned on the men and basically called them out and mutiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's had nothing to do with the experimental manipulation. It was a yeah. spontaneous event, but I think that has a more powerful message, which is yeah. that if we if we if we work together and scrutinise who has an in, a vested interest in us being divided and at loggerheads, then we're able to take action. And I think that's what, what happens a lot of the time is people feel like they're pawns in a much larger game, and I think that's true. And, again, this is the great metaphor about um, Sharif's experiment. It is a great experiment that way. I mean, I think the classics are 
they're, they're, they're certainly flawed as psychological science, but they're fantastic metaphors <laughs> for events in the contemporary world. You've got Milgram, you've got yeah. the Stanford Prison Study, you yeah. know, they're, that's part of their enduring appeal, I guess, and it's why they get they get referenced so often and cited so often, although Sharif's Robber's Cave experiment, I would say, is less well-known than the others, but it's it is gaining in... Uh, ascendancy now, I think, because of contemporary events. People are looking for science that explains what's happening, and that's a, that one is one that people are reaching for. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, and also I, I you know, you're a woman after my own heart. I mean, I, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. I think, and I think it is the fundamental question: a, follow the money, like you said, and b, who has a vested interest in keeping. Uh, group, uh, warring groups of humans on this planet, uh, keep them fighting so that they don't join up and have the power of the masses. And like you saw yes. with the first experiment, it's a great example. They realized what was going on and that they, you know, they, they, they mutinied, uh, which is incredible. Well, so let's, let's dive right into these experiments. We've been hinting at them. We got to talk about these because I got 10 pages of notes. We're not going to get to them all, but I'm going to try to hit some of the, uh, the, the, the big moments. So this is essentially, let me see if I can uh, summarize this. So it's essentially these are, I think there were three, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there were three ultimately. And the goal was to go to a summer camp, have a group of kids, a group of boys show up with similar backgrounds, have them create social bonds and be divided into groups, have those group, have them develop intergroup norms, rituals, um, beliefs, um, you know, be it nicknames, leaders, um, you know, an identity, a group identity, and then pit them against each other, create two antagonistic groups so that they are basically at each other's throats. And then at the end, find a common enemy, a common uh, goal or a conflict that brings them together and that will ultimately create harmony between the groups. Is that roughly, am I, am I, is that pretty good for a starting point? Very good for a starting point. Okay. All right. <laughs> Perfect. And so I believe, and, and I want you to kind of adjust this a little bit, but I believe that Sharif's theory was, if this is done correctly, the two groups will reconcile at, in the end and that joint conflict, basically the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This will make these groups who have been, you know, at each other's throats for three weeks, will make them come together. And he wanted to use this as a metaphor for societies as a whole. Is that pretty close? Um, yeah, but less probably um, the, en the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's probably more than that because what he was saying was that the, the problem the two groups faced had to be larger than each single group could solve on their own. So mm, people were, mm, the mm. groups were forced to cooperate. And then because they were forced to cooperate, they had to mingle, they had to talk, they had to engage in teamwork. And so that broke down the uh, negative stereotypes that they had about one another. It fostered a, a sense of cooperation and group cohesion. So it wasn't it wasn't just that there was something that was out there that was dangerous. It was the way they came together and formed a new group really to tackle that problem. So um, that was basically his theory for how things would go. But as you say, this happened over three experiments and each experiment he 
he he reached further and further for the conclusion that he wanted to. And, <laughs> you know, you, I, 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 early, I said earlier that the 1953 experiment was a failed one. Yeah. Um, it was failed in his eyes, but, you know, it, it still had a lot of interesting stuff to say about how those people, those children reacted spontaneously. Yeah. Well, it's a good point because uh, what I love is that the joined conflict that they were, so these are kids at a summer camp and the conflict that was bigger than themselves that they had to come together and, and tackle their idea was to, to create a forest fire in this camp that they had to solve. And if that doesn't tell you exactly everything you need to know about the researcher's stance and why they mutinied, uh, I don't know what does. Um, but so I, so I think there were three attempts. I got a little confused with the timeline, but I think I have it. The first one was basically a camp that they set up with, with a similar, you know, similar dynamic, but then it had to be ended early. So they couldn't even really finish the experiment. That's right. That's the first one, right? Yeah, yeah. that was 1949. Okay. And then the Middle Grove experiment, uh, that was the second one. And this one, they, they, they had, you know, homogenous groups of people, similar backgrounds. Uh, this was funded by the Rockefeller Group, which I thought was really interesting. There's a six-person research team. Sharif and a couple other people um, were all involved. They were they were supposed to be separate, so they had a you know a research team that was basically there to make sure that the experiment was ethical. And then there were people who were involved in the day-to-day operations of a a camp and b a research experiment. And so they brought these kids into the camp, let them intermingle as one big group, and then took notes, and then separated them into two distinct groups. Now, this was a very interesting twist on what they did, and it didn't exactly go as planned. Uh, so that's the first step. And so wh- why do you think why do you think Sharif went with this idea to let the, all of the kids get together and then split them up into groups? And why do you think that that failed in his eyes? I think it failed in his eyes because, uh, and I think, this was a, a fundamental flaw of his experiment was that he forgot that these were children. They were a long way from home and anyone who's ever been to summer camp will tell you that homesickness is a big problem yep. and that you bond very quickly. You find your buddy mm-hmm. or buddies very quickly. And so the boys, when they were separated into two groups, were quite unhappy because what happened was Sharif deliberately separated boys who'd bonded in the first couple of days. Right, yeah. So if I bonded with my friend Johnny, then Johnny goes into the opposing group. I, I would feel um, devastated. I was with a new, strange group of kids. I would have seen them around the camp, but I didn't know them. So that was a real issue. And, of course, because they're children and they're curious they wanted to know if they were being punished. They wanted to know why they'd been separated from their friends. So from the word go, they were questioning the behaviour of the adults. Right. They were looking to try and understand why this was happening. Because the other thing is, this was a three-week summer camp. Now, that is a long time. And also they had siblings who'd been on summer camp. So some of them knew what summer camps were supposed to be like. You know, you'd be sitting around the campfire at night singing with your counsellor and having a great old time, whereas this seemed odd and 
it set a sour, um, troubling note from the beginning. And one of the key things here is that Sharif wanted to make sure that it was hands off. I mean, the kids, the, the researchers were not meant to develop attachments to the kids. They let the kids kind of decide what, what they were going to do, when they were going to do it. If you had to set up a, a tent, you know, it's basically, here's the, here are the supplies, you figure it out. <laughs> I mean, it was weird. And with, and Sharif had several, you know, these researchers were, were, were you know, a dual job as a counselor. And it was weird because there was almost a play within a play within a play here, right? Because then you had the researchers in some ways dividing into groups, creating animosity, and then having to come together to basically finish the experiment was their joined, uh, you know, their conflict that they needed to join. I mean, this is the, the first to me. I know the robbers' cave gets a, gets you know all the press, and that's the big one. To me, I loved this second, this middle grove experiment because it just seems so much more complex and in a lot of ways very much more revealing on how people would react in those situations given everything that was going on what do you think i think you're right but also um middle grove i think uh, this is off the top of my head but i think it was a staff team of at least nine and it it chewed up most of sharif's funding this was the experiment this was his major experiment and he expected that he would get the results that he was looking for with this 1953 study. So what it meant was by the time he got to Robbers Cave, he had very little money left, and they did it with an absolute skeleton staff. But going back to the Middle Grove experiment, you're right, the whole um, interaction between the staff team, he has a staff member who, as you say, is supposed to keep the experimenters objective mm -hmm. and honest and <laughs> <Right>. ethical <laughs> yeah. and in the end he gets completely he gets locked out of staff meetings <laughs> because you know his point of view is is not required is not interested yeah. in pursuing that line because things are getting desperate yeah. they need to get this experiment to work and they have to more and more actively intervene to make that happen. So by the end of that experiment, we have, on one hand, we have the children coming together spontaneously in a mutiny against the staff, and we have the staff divided into two warring groups, <laughs> and we end up yeah. having a yeah. fist fight yeah. between yeah. two of the staff, including Sharif, right. that has to be broken up. Um so the irony of that is just incredible, really. I mean, as you the play within a play within a play. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And <laughs> so I have to say, I to me, this is the first that 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 Middle Grove experiment just had so many fun nuances for me. Um, and we'll get we'll get to the robbers cave, but we got to set it up with Middle Grove because one of my my favorite through lines in this whole story is this kid named Harold McDonough. And so he's in the Middle Grove experiment. And from the beginning, from the get go, he smells a rat. He knows something is up. And I love this kid. I, I feel for this kid because this is me. If I went to summer camp and I was there, I feel like I would have been this kid. So like day one, I believe he goes into the mess hall where everyone's in the cafeteria, uh, where everyone's eating. And he looks up and he sees these microphones hanging from the ceiling. And so he goes to a counselor and he's like, hey, what, what are these microphones for? 
And the counselor is, you know, trying to play it off. He's a dumb kid. He doesn't know. He's like, oh, that's how we do intercom. That's our intercom system. And that's how we're going to, you know, give announcements to everyone when you're in this room. And Harold looks up and he's like, yeah, but those are microphones. They're, they're not speakers. And the counselor like looks at him and is like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, oh. and then like walks away, <laughs> just walks away and ignores him. But he was like on to it from the beginning. And ultimately, he uses his observations later on to get out of the camp. I mean, this kid, uh, I, I loved him, but it shows you a I think, as you mentioned, these are kids and Sharif forgot that they were kids. But also, this is at a time when 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 adults did not realize a how much kids pick up of their surroundings. And you mentioned ew, we talk about how how um, distant all of the the staff were, and they were looking to them for guidance. They're adults, right? So they don't have that. They don't have that structure. But also, how smart kids really are. So they're picking up a lot. They're putting a lot together. Now, he seems to be kind of the outlier, really putting the pieces together. But I think they were all in their own way picking up on all of the oddness of this camp. And that, as you mentioned, becomes the factor that makes them as a group of kids. So now it's not arbitrary group of kids A versus arbitrary group of kids B. This is kids versus adults. And that is their unifying um, moment, their unifying event, so to speak. It's an event over three weeks. But that was just amazing to me. And I love this kid, Harold. He's the he's the best character in the story, Gina. He's the best character in the story, pants down. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm not so sure about that because in the end, he basically it's he he, he saves his his own self and gets out of there. Exactly. Um, no, but see, this is the thing. Uh-huh. Um, this is the thing. I was relying on the notes that the men made about what they observed, and that was a, a large source of information for me. And they've recorded these things, like that 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 conversation with Harold with the microphones in the roof, that was recorded in the notes. Yeah. Now Sharif used to read those observation notes every time he went to bed, and I'm just sorry, every night before he went to bed, and they'd had these really late night staff meetings. I was surprised and I, I think he probably had words with his team about um, the <laughs> amount of detail they put in their observation <laughs> notes because yeah. um, there are snippets all the way through that just give you a little hint of what these kids are really thinking and feeling. And, of course, I tracked down some of the boys and I was able to flesh that out Um and really get a sense of it. I mean, maybe Harold didn't tell the other kids his his um, concerns about the experiment. Maybe they, maybe they, maybe he did, and they ignored them. Who knows? I don't know. But he certainly got himself out of there. So he was definitely <laughs> a good little survivor. He, he was. He was uh, to me. He was mm. the smartest person on st- staff, kid or researcher. Uh, I loved him. The other thing that's really interesting about this this Middle Grove experiment is there's another lesson that Sharif learns the hard way. Uh, And by learned, I mean doesn't learn at all Um, because the way he wants to pit these kids against each other and the competition is for a set of Bowie knives, which I think were illegal for an 11 year old. That's a gigantic crocodile Dundee type knife, if I'm understanding it correctly. Uh, These are big (laughs) knives. That's the prize that they're fighting for. Um, But he pits them together in, in a game of baseball. Now, this is this is American baseball in the 1950s. 
And there is no other, and to this day, there is no other sporting event or competitive event, I should say, that really emphasizes sportsmanship more than baseball. So even in the game, and I'm a competitor, I've played sports, and I know how competitive people can be in the moment of sports. And Sharif was really happy when a lot of these guys were at their, some guy gets, some kid gets knocked out and he's like, oh yeah, these guys are going to go at each other. Then the game's over. And everyone's high-fiving, good gaming, good gaming, three cheers for the other guy. So at the end of it, there is no animosity because that's how, you know, kids are in America are taught about baseball. I, I love that because that really threw him for a loop because I think he was really struggling to find a way to really get these kids to go at each other's throats. And, you know, being from Turkey, not having that cultural connection, I think was really a downside that comes up later in the robber's cave experiment. I mean, this was just really eye-opening to me. There was an element of him not wanting to be told, mm -hmm. really. Yep. I think uh, there was a, a, a degree of arrogance there, and, and that's the only real word I can think of to describe it. But um, And also I, I just had the feeling I don't think any of those experimenters, except one at Middle Grove, certainly none at Robber's Cave, had children, or sorry, none of them had sons, uh, Sharif's children were small at that stage, so they weren't 10-year-olds. Uh, there was something about uh, the fact that they didn't acknowledge that children don't just listen to what you say, they watch what you do, yep, and they're yep. constantly, as we all are, we are try we're making judgments about one another on the basis of a whole lot of nonverbal cues, and we read into people as much by what they don't say as what they do. So it didn't matter how well scripted the experiment was, the kids, certainly at Middle Grove, just did not buy it. They were troubled, they were worried, they were constantly trying to work out what was the right thing to do, what was the wrong thing. I mean, even the fact that uh, Sharif describes um, his experimental team hiding behind trees and taking notes. What, <laughs> were they supposed to be invisible? <laughs> that's, that's crazy. I mean, that is really funny. And, you know, and the other thing that's kind of like the magic, the secret sauce of this experiment is that these kids, as you mentioned, are 10 and 11. And there's, a, there, there's some really great, I mean, it's anecdotal. I don't know if there's any scientific basis for that, but it's a great age because it's the moment where you're not a child anymore. You do have, you're, you're a, a young adult but you also don't have the rebellious streak of a teenager. So this is the perfect age, but because it's the perfect age, kids are looking, they're observing, they're absorbing. Um, you know, this is, you know, every, everyone, every adult who's ever gone and seen a therapist in their adult life realizes that all the problems came from this part of their life, right? That's how much, how malleable our brains are at this moment. So it's just a, a really quintessential time. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, this, this, as you mentioned, this, this experiment ends in kind of a mutiny. The kids feel like they've been left on an island. There's no structure. They've been made to kind of take on, uh, the role of, of, um, of their, their own, their own leadership, right? So this becomes, in some ways, a failure. Sharif, you know, you mentioned the research team comes to blows. You know, it's really basically considered a failure. Now, a couple of problems. As you mentioned, uh, he blew a lot of his money on this experiment. So he's got to come up with something. And the Rockefeller organization is the organization who's knocking on the door trying to figure out what's going on. So he has to put together another attempt. He doesn't feel like he can use the stuff that he's learned from the Middle Grove. So he's got to come up with the robber's cave. Now, this one is a completely different 
environment. You know, one of the guys from the previous experiment, one of his like inside men, not the people he marginalized, a guy named OJ Harvey, uh, who I love this just really quickly. I love that he was named OJ after a cattle rustler because his family wanted him named after a uh, like a criminal so that he would guarantee that he would never be a criminal. Uh, and then, of course, O.J. Simpson, right? Like, <laughs> that's the first thing that came into my head when I learned that. Anyway, so he's put in charge and he's kind of setting up the experiment. But this was a little bit different. So tell me, how does Sharif alter his approach given what he's trying to accomplish as well as trying to learn from the failures of the previous experiment? Well, uh, the first thing I think that made a big difference was that he brought the groups to the camp in separate buses on different days and the Robbers Cave State Park was so big and still is so big that neither group was aware that the other group was there. So there wasn't that spontaneous bonding that they had in the Middle Grove experiment. The groups were very definitely separate and... um, the then the the introduction of the other group was the only time they were introduced to the group was after they'd had a couple of days to sort of feel like their group owned the park you know they they as far as they were concerned their group were the only kids there uh they they um they went to the famous robbers cave they had campfires in there i think sharif really concentrated on them having adventures and fun although again some of the descriptions of the things they did put my hair on end especially when I went to (laughs) Robbers Cave and saw the cave itself oh yeah I got a sense of how dangerous um the men were seemed uh quite immune to that or, or or well let me let me pop in here really quickly because on that note what what's interesting is in the book you talk about how the first day they're they're brought up to that cave to that robber's cave and that this is a park based on you know a cave that has a, a kind of an infamous history where you know outlaws and and people were hidden a lot of you know uh murders it's a cowboys and indians type of world but also on that first day there's a cave there, uh, you know, and they're basically like, hey, let's go ex- explore the cave. And it's very difficult to get in. Um, it's like a slide down. There's no lights. Anyone's ever been in a cave? No, there's no lights in a cave. Incredibly dangerous. I think when you went, it was fenced off, <laughs> right? But that was their first introduction. Hey, you want to explore the cave? Go explore the cave. You know, we're going to eat at seven. <laughs> Don't get trapped like Timmy in the well. Uh, but I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. that that tells you exactly what the mindset is right off the bat, right? Um, yeah, again, it's not your average summer camp, to put it mildly. And so by on the other hand, I guess maybe the uh, experimental team thought that doing these kind of um, dangerous stunts gave the boys a sort of a an origin story, right, you know, yeah. that it, it added to their particular group identity. And certainly that group, the Rattlers, seem to develop an identity over time as being tough, not showing their feelings, not being afraid. Um, What a burden, hey? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was talking to someone today about how Social science is really interesting. Like I studied a little psychology in, in, in college, like everybody, right? Everyone had Psycho 101. Uh, but what's the difference between psychology and sociology is psychology is an individual mentality, like how they, how the, an individual thinks. And sociology is how a group thinks. But sociology, and this is a social experiment, is so – the the it is so dependent upon – strong 
individuals within that group who voice their personality, opinions, or whatever on that other group. And then the followers really kind of take that on. And, and for the Rattlers, number one, they were called the Rattlers because they were in a boat on the first day and two Rattlers were eating a frog. And one of the counselors just whipped out his, you know, Colt, this Desert Eagle 5.0 or whatever, and <laughs> just shot it. So they're like, hey, we're the Rattlers. Uh, and not knowing what he hit, whether well, it was, he luckily didn't hit a kid. But also they had this aggressive kid named Red who really became a de facto leader, you know? And what I, here's what I love about this experiment. And this is, well, I know we're not in the weeds yet, but I want to mention this here because then there's another group who has a very different leader, you know, a kid who um, comes, to, he, he's very nice to kids, you know, kids within that group. Uh, I believe they're called the Eagles. This is the Eagles, right? Uh, so the Eagles have a different leader who's much nicer. The kids within the Eagles were making fun of another kid and he kind of dressed them down for that. A very different atmosphere. The Eagles were very much looking forward to meeting the Rattlers. The Rattlers were like, no, we're going to, we want to kill the Eagles. And this this made me think of, I don't know if you're familiar with, with bonobos. A lot, some people aren't, but bonobos and chimpanzees are, are very similar. You know, they share 95% or 97% of human DNA. They're, they're incredibly intelligent primates, but they have two very different societies. Chimpanzees, you know, we see Lancelot Link was my favorite show growing up, and we see them as being very human-like and silly and goofy, but they're an incredibly aggressive species. I mean, you know, they handle their differences by beating to death other chimpanzees, whereas the bonobos... You know, the females really have the dominance because they use sex to kind of kind of uh, uh, keep aggression to a minimum, you know, and this is too. It made it made me think my long winded explanation here is to say this really seemed like two ways in which primates attack group interactions in either it's an aggressive authoritarian style or it's a democratic uh, group commune kind of style. And I think we see that play out in the robbers experiment. I don't know if that crossed your mind or if I'm retreading stuff that a million other people have thought before, but that was what struck me immediately after I finished reading it. No, that's interesting. Interesting observation. I hadn't thought about that before um, because, as you say, um, the you know the whole idea of, the group leaders having an impact on the boys is is there in the experiment, but also that group members, you know, Sharif had diagrams of who was sort of like the lieutenants in the group. And, um, <laughs> like the mafia, yeah, right. <laughs> like, like the mafia, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure that those categorizations work all the time because... You know, you gave the example of Red, the bully who was powerful at the beginning. Well, those boys ended up rebelling against him and holding a kind of an informal court. It was a coup. It was a kangaroo court slash coup. It's like a military coup, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they didn't want the adults involved in that. They didn't want the men near it. So the men didn't describe it in any detail oh, interesting. because they weren't allowed to observe it. So... Um, the, the, for me, that said that those Rattler boys, they were manipulated into being aggressive, not just because they were encouraged to do dangerous things and because the bully was allowed to bully. Now, the adults didn't punish him for his behaviour, so that gave the message to the other children that he he was being endorsed as the leader. Right. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the other thing is, and, and this sounds trivial, but it, 
in reading the notes at the time, it had a big impact on the Rattlers that the night that they were told that there was another group in the park, the Eagles were in the mess hall and they were having a birthday cake for one of the Eagles boys whose birthday it was. Mm -hmm. And the Rattlers were in the park. They could hear the boys singing happy birthday. They knew there was a cake and they were told that they weren't allowed, that they hadn't been invited. And yet when I read the Observer notes, the Eagles boys had wanted the Rattlers to come in. It sounds minor, but that was their first interaction and it was of the Rattlers feeling excluded and alone mm-hmm. out in the dark yep. and the Eagles inside happily sharing a cake together. I mean, they were being set up to react when they finally came together in the tournament in ways that would foster that aggression and hostility. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect, it's the first example, uh, we're going to get to to a couple of others, but it's the first example where the researchers are actively, right? They're supposed to be passive observers. They're actively manipulating the situation to increase and encourage and incite aggression towards each other. Um, But it's just so funny as you're explaining this, it's just so funny to think of all of these little kids. It's a microcosm of humanity in some ways, right? Like you're looking at a bunch of kids forming, having a leader come to power. Uh, The group gets together and has a coup and kicks him out. You know, you've got another group that is really a more democratic leader and they're more like a commune type of consensus. And I think they even had trouble like some communes uh, and even the idea of consensus or democracy where you've got people voting. But what do you do at 50 50? Right. Um, With a democracy, 50 percent of the people aren't going to be happy. I mean, sure, they have a, a, a voice, but when their voice is is heard, but then you don't get it. There, there's problems with that as well. And just watching this, it is such an, an incredible look. And I think this is the value of this experiment was just how you're seeing all of these human, like like almost intrinsic, genetically hardwired human traits and ways of to deal with problems that are universal. We see them being acted out on a small stage here, but you can easily apply that in some way to how, you know, large groups of people, and by large groups, I mean countries, cities, you know, the world, how they act. And to me, that was the most, uh, that was the most enlightening part of, of reading this book is just how universal these reactions to this, these conflict and this drama, how universal they really are. I agree. I agree. Um, and you made the point earlier about psychology and sociology. When you think about it, um, Musafa Sharif is much more up the sociology end of psychology. He's studying groups in society rather than individual psychology. And so in a way, uh, that kind of observational experiment is very messy. Um, And, you know, Sharif talks in his book about the things that the experimenters did to increase levels of conflict but he just called it something more scientific. Um, but, but he acknowledges that they did that. I mean, it wasn't as if he was hiding all of it. Right. I certainly unearthed things that were not referenced in the published uh, materials, uh, you know. I mean, the fact that, that I think that the biggest thing for me, um, the biggest surprise for me initially anyway, was that the boys had never been told that it was an experiment. So um, when I met them, that was difficult. Um, that was something I hadn't expected. 
Well, I mean, I imagine that would be a hard sell. I mean, they were selling, you know, a free summer camp. But I mean, I don't know that most parents would let their kids be manipulated like that. Because, you know, as we're talking about, the the adults are supposed to be watching uh, what's going on, but they're, you know, they're, they're stealing the flags from the other people. I think they, they, you mentioned that in the first, after the first baseball game, which was also a problem because again, good sportsmanship, it didn't matter how much they didn't like each other, good sportsmanship won out. And so there wasn't really any animosity, but I believe the Rattlers left their, I'm forgetting who left their flag behind, but the, they were, you know, you, you hint at this, that they were encouraged to uh, deface that flag. And I think it was even burned. And you say, well, how did they get matches? <laughs> right? And I mean, this is interesting because it shows you just how even, even you know, and I think they end up trashing a cabin. So hands on, right? Like that's an active uh, manipulation. But, it, you know, there's also this psychological manipulation that you're talking about that leaving, you know, one one group's having cake and the other one's down, you know, down the the the, the river in a boat or wherever, on a campsite or whatever, where they can just downwind of the noise, right? And that's the psychological manipulation that's going on here. And it's passive, but they're all trying to get to the same thing. And I think what kind of annoyed me is that when you're talking about these scientists and they're putting their findings together, and you you mentioned you you know cite parts in the book, and you know it's all very scientific. Is it though? <laughs> I mean, like, is it scientific? Like to me, my observations in some way make a lot more sense. At like this is uh, this is kind of what human beings are like. But they were really breaking it down as if this is how everyone acts because of these scientific reasons. And I think that manipulation, the, the way they were actively changing, creating animosity, doing all that, I think that really tainted what could have been a great experiment. Um, now, am I right there? Or do you think that, that that manipulation was required in order to get the results that they needed in that short window, which could also be another argument? Sharif had a very uh, particular view about uh, experiments, and that was that they were a demonstration of what happened in real life. Okay. So he was trying to replicate what he kind of knew. Now, that sounds terribly unscientific to us, but it was yeah. definitely a, Absolutely. <laughs> um, a trend at that time, um, and it came from uh, Kurt Lewin, who was... They, you know, is is uh, often called the father of social psychology, who was himself uh, an immigrant. And uh, so, what it means is that that the the scientists' view of what exists in the real world is the privileged view that somehow the scientist understands that these things happen. And then you set up an experiment to demonstrate how that works. That's a great word you just chose there. Demonstrate versus prove. And I think that's the key to all of this. That's that's a great choice of words. Yes. So that's the sort of in that certainly drives Sharif's research. So I think it's important to bear that in mind because if we look at it from the point of view of how we would view it now in terms of objectivity. Of course, uh, there's an enormous amount of room for subjective judgments. Sure. That's fair. But that kind of active manipulation that I discovered going through the archival material, as I said earlier, was not referred to in the published accounts. It was downplayed. It was there were times when it was referred to um, that you know things obstacles would be put in the boys' way. 
and that those obstacles would prompt certain things to happen. But it was definitely presented as part of a scientific scenario. So it was a different time, um, but those, you know, th there is something about groups in action in, in an experiment that uh, give us lots of food for thought and there's, a, there's so much rich material in those experiments about how we how we react, what we do, but we have to remember these were children. So, yes, we can argue that it's universal, but these were 10-year-old boys in Oklahoma at a particular time in history who were a long way from home. So I think we need to keep an eye on the particularity of this experiment because the trap in seeing it as universal, I think, is that we lose sight of the nuances, which are that, you know, leadership roles change in a group and uh, we sometimes can't reduce human behaviour to formulas. People do things that surprise us and make us feel optimistic and they, you know, I, I really did feel that uh, both at Robbers Cave and Middle Grove, that altruism trumped tribalism in both cases. Those boys, even at Robbers Cave, they tried hard not to be manipulated at different times. And as you say, where were, who gave them matches? How were these circumstances set up? We don't know because I'm relying on the unreliable narrators of the story, which is the uh, experimenters themselves and their notes and the memories of the boys and the memories of the boys obviously are fragmented. So fascinating. No, it is. And I'll just say this uh, because I think you make some, I think you make excellent points there. The only thing I would say is I think, I think as, you know, when we look at science and we look at theories, you know, when people postulate a theory, we look at, oh, well, what are the, the myriad possibilities that could happen because anything's possible, right? And I think that's I think that's true. So, for example, this is a scientific example. Um, but in this other podcast, uh, I talk with a, um, a physicist about various different pop culture science. And one of the things we just talked about was how in nature, right, like in biology, there's only two ways to make a horn. There's there's curled horns and then there's branching horns or antlers, right? A horns, antlers is what I mean. And that's because the physics only allows for those two variations to exist. Now there can be, you can have a moose, you can have a deer, those are branching, right? You can have um, a, a goat or you can have, you know, a, a ram or I think it might be the same thing. But anyway, you only have those two structures, but they are a little different, but basically the same. And I think with this social type of experiment, I think you're right, you can have different leaders, but I'm saying in my extraordinarily uneducated opinion, I'm saying that when I read this, it and by my life experience, it seems to me the chimp versus bonobo theory makes a lot of sense. And you will either have someone like a red. It doesn't have to be as bullyish as red. They could be a secret manipulator, right? Like they're sociopaths who manipulate people without having to beat them down. But, in, but they're still an authoritarian leader, right? And I think you still find either that strong leaders who le deal with an iron fist, who don't want anyone else's opinion, or a type of person who either has, they're nice and you look to them like, um, 
like a cult leader, uh, let's not a cult leader, like a damaging cult leader, but a cult, like a yogi or a, a guru who will listen, but they're in charge and they'll listen, or you have democracy, but that doesn't have the, um, the iron fist that the other, I think there are two distinct ways and different, but I, I think there are just really two different ways to handle those types of social groups. Now I could be wrong. Um, but I think that this, that at least this experiment makes me think that you can have variations on that belief. But I think you're still only going to find roughly two different types of ways to deal with large groups of people getting together and having to basically police themselves, which is the the situation we find the boys find themselves in in, in all three experiments. You know, um, I'll just say that in, in conclusion. Um, but one of the things before we finish up here that I wanted to talk about is that you went out and you talked to these boys, which I thought was, was fascinating. Tell me a little bit about how you track them down, like who they were, how you track them down, and then how they felt so many years after the experiment, and especially after learning that it was in fact an experiment. Were there any stories or, or points of view or changes that happened in any of these boys that you, that you got to talk to? Um, well, the boys' names are redacted in the archives, but um, I was able to uh, track down a couple. And once I did that and I knew what area they came from, so, for example, um, in Schenectady, the Schenectady area in upstate New York was a, the recruitment area for the Middle Grove experiment. Um, and uh, obviously the Robbers Cave experiment was conducted down in Oklahoma. I didn't have any luck with the boys from the first experiment. But um, so honestly, I, I just Googled and Googled and Googled and I wrote to people and asked them if they were an experiment in 1953 because I had a couple of surnames to go with initially. So um, I... I did that. I wrote to people and I, you can imagine, imagine getting a letter out of the blue 50 years after right. you've been on summer camp right. from someone in Australia. <laughs> I tell you what, I agonised over what I put in those letters. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was very fortunate because um, the boys that responded to my letters were fascinated, um, but I was very fortunate because um, I didn't realise until I met the first one in um, upstate New York, who's um, Doug Grissett, who sadly just passed. So, um, he's been a wonderful uh, part of this project. But uh, he was the first one who alerted me to the fact that he never knew that it was an experiment. He was, so he was fascinated. He was curious. He had so many questions, as did all of the boys that I eventually spoke to because it made them think about what had happened and how it might have shaped their subsequent choices and their subsequent experiences in life. So Doug, for example, was fascinated by his participation in the Middle Grove experiment and wondered, you know, how, how, had, how had that made him a leader later on in his life? What sort of decisions had he made in group situations that might have been influenced by that. But just to go back on that then, my, my whole ex, the, the whole idea of the book then shifted once I started meeting the boys and I started to realise 
that they'd never been told. And my emphasis then became on answering their questions. And their questions were, <laughs> yeah. how was I recruited for this? How much did my parents know? How might this have shaped me? How might I, how did I behave? Did I kind of pass on the camp or did I fail? That people were worried about that. Um, so there were lots of questions there and really that shaped how I wrote the book, which is why there's a lot in the, particularly as you say in the, the section where I go to Turkey and I explore Sharif's background because that seemed to me to be a huge part of the puzzle of these experiments. There's nothing like them. There wasn't before and there hasn't been since really. Um, and who was the man behind them? That was the big question that a lot of the books had. Um, and uh, how might I have been harmed by this as well as how might I have benefited? So wow. it was a terrific, terrific um, journey, and I'm very grateful to all of them. Well, it tells you just how important this period in, in children's lives are, right? Like if you asked me for a three-week uh, event in my 20s, <laughs> I don't know that 50 or in my 70s or 80s, I'd be able to tell you with any certainty, like how much that affected my life. Right. But in when you're 10 or 11, I mean, there's a lot that goes on where that, that could definitely affect your long term, uh, your long term behavior. Uh, so I wanted in closing here, I found the, the line I was going to tell you about. This is the robber's cave experiment. And I think you said the, 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 the robber's cave experiment wasn't testing a theory. It was a choreographed reenact, a choreographed enactment with the boys playing the leading roles in someone else's script. And I think that that really, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, I say this a lot with, you know, a lot of the stuff going on where we're judging people and places and things from 100 years ago with, you know, 2020 eyes. Uh, I don't think that that's fair um, because the time, place and events in any particular one moment kind of are the environment that people are raised in. And as you mentioned, these experiments came out of a different time. We, we, we started off by saying they came out of the, the, the events of World War II. We got MK Ultra, which was, you know, uh, ethical doesn't even be unethical, doesn't even begin to, to, to explain what those were. Um, but it's a different time, different place. And I think that's part of the reason why these will never happen again doesn't mean that there is not valuable information. And at the very least, Gina, this is an incredibly entertaining book that I absolutely loved. So if people want to get a hold of it, um, how can people do that? How can people get in touch with you? How can people learn more about any one of these experiments or Muzaffar Sharif himself? Well, uh, people can get hold of the book on Amazon or they can go to my website, which is www.gina-perry.com. And there's a link there to the book. There's a link to reviews. There's um, summaries and articles and photos, all sorts of information about the book that they can follow up there at their in, as they follow their interests. Uh, do you do any social media? Are you Twitter, Facebook, uh, any of that stuff? Yeah, on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, so just look me up at Gina Perry on Twitter. And the same on Facebook. Perfect. And I'll have links to all of that to make things easy for people to get in touch with you and get your book. Uh, but this is just a, a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful journey, uh, surprising finds, and, you know, really a, a brain-opening experience for me because I love this stuff. Uh, and hopefully, you know, uh, if you're not too tired about talking about Milligram, uh, I would love to read that book as well and have a, a conversation about that. Uh, that's... Oh, I'd love uh, to talk to you about that one too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, that is one. <laughs> 
a heck of a talk about a watershed moment. Um, but but Gina, thank you so much for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Lovely to talk to you. Ciao for now. Thank you very much. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. and We even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.